This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Bobby, and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. So, if you're listening to this episode, it is not Wednesday, it is a Thursday. Um, I was, I will I'll give you a little bit of backstory as to why this episode is a little bit late. The research for it took a little bit longer than I planned, and I wanted to make sure that this episode was, you know, well researched like all of them are but this one means a lot a little bit more to me because it's a subject matter that I love quite a bit and also I had the absolute pleasure of getting to attend the premiere of Showtime's new show The Man Who Fell to Earth and it was an absolutely amazing time I got to hang out with some of my my content creator influencer buddies and it was just a really fun night I I did fall my shoes broke at the end of the night so you know that's how you know it was it was kind of a wild night altogether but I'm okay nothing was broken uh shockingly but yeah so late night means that it was a pretty late morning on Wednesday as well so it's just kind of a cacophony of things going on and I said you know what I am going to push this off for one day and then we will pick back with Wednesday uploads next week so Next Wednesday, you have a hot and ready podcast episode waiting for you. But I just thought I'd give a little bit of a uh, a reason for why this week's episode is a little bit a little bit late. But anyways, as always, we like to open with some opening minutes of kind of the random pop culture things that are of interest to me that happened this week, or just pop culture things that I watch that are like twenty years old at this point. But I feel like I want to talk about them. So obviously, the big pop culture news coming from marvel studios as always is we got the teaser trailer for thor love and thunder um i am a thor the dark world apologist i love thor ragnarok and this film feels like it's going to be just a perfect continuation of taika watiti's vision for thor following thor ragnarok so i'm super excited about it the teaser trailer looked awesome there is some like 80s influence very much like he-man conan the barbarian uh never-ending story type of storytelling that's gonna be happening so if you like 80s movies i think you might like thor love and thunder they're definitely taking that kind of like 80s approach for sure but super excited for that and it comes out like pretty pretty soon they marvel doesn't tend to do like back-to-back like big movie premieres like this uh, anymore so multiverse of madness comes out at the beginning of may and i think love and thunder comes out in july so 
a lot of back and forth with with Marvel Studios right now. So it's a little bit crazy. But of course, whenever something of uh, I don't know note happens, the little gremlin film bros come out of nowhere and just decide that they must share their opinion on something that simply no one asked for. And this situation was no different. So <clears throat> we all know that Marvel uh, uses VFX and CGI quite a bit. Um, if you don't know, this just basically like to allow the superheroes to actually be super and go to these far off lands. You kind of need CGI and you kind of need VFX. I mean, it's a lot of like green screen work. And for whatever reason, film bros have waged a war on green screens and computer generated imagery. And this film was no different. There was a tweet that went around basically saying that like VFX is not cinematography and I'm going to flex my film studies minor from the University of Georgia real fast and just talk about how like we as a collective don't quite have an appreciation for VFX, CGI, and like I think a lot of people speak with some type of authority on things that they don't quite know about which is every aspect of anything always has people who do that but in this particular case vfx and cgi work is essentially animation that's what it is computer generated imagery started and was kind of invented around animated films so like think pixar that's computer generated imagery it doesn't look like flat drawings on the page and since that time it is now morphed into this thing that is kind of the foundation and backbone of modern hollywood so Every, almost every film that comes out uses CGI and VFX in some way because a lot of these things are very fantastical and they can't always be done practically. Now, I will say that some films do overuse their use of CGI to the point where it can kind of look a little bit bad, but a good balance is using CGI work and using practical effects. And if you're wondering, like, what is a film that does that well? Jurassic Park, the first Jurassic Park film, I have watched it many a times in the past couple of years and it still holds up, like the effects still hold up. And it's because Steven Spielberg, who I'm going to be, you know, giving a lot of praise in these next few minutes to, knew that a good film is a balance of a lot of different techniques. And so he used CGI and like special effects, digital special effects, and he also used a lot of practical effects. So I digress. So that's the whole thing like yes you can use cgi and vfx in excess and it cannot look good but the main issue that i have with these these film bros who come out of the little you know, trenches where they live is that they tend to be punching down on the wrong people so historically in hollywood animators and vfx artists really anyone who's working in like digital work they are they tend to be grossly overworked and extremely underpaid there's actually like a, a big movement within the animation industry right now, which is like a new deal for animation, basically just calling for some like pay raises across the board amongst a lot of other things. I think a lot of people tend to kind of like discredit animation because they see it as like, oh, it's just for kids. It's not that, you know, it's not that expansive. Who cares about it? And it's really, like I said, it's very essential to film nowadays. So I think... They're just punching down on the wrong people. When you say like, oh, this VFX is not cinematography or you make the argument like, oh, this film has too much CGI. You're not punching 
up to the directors and the studios that do it. You're punching down on the artists who toiled for hours and were probably not paid very well to do so. So just, you know, keeping that type of stuff in mind, like film is a collaborative process. You can't point to one person and blame them all the time. And so when you make sweeping arguments like that, it probably you're punching down on someone and it's probably someone who doesn't deserve it and is just trying to do a job and feed themselves. Um, That in addition to the fact that I think, like I said, a lot of people speak with authority on things that they just simply don't know about. And I think a lot of people don't understand that, like like I said, CGI and VFX work is a form of animation. It, It really is. And in animation, a little fun fact for you, animation has pretty much all the elements that you will find in a live action movie can be found in an animated movie. So you have direction, you have cinematography, you have lighting. Like there was a video from Steven Spielberg, who I, who was my, my favorite director. And it was from like this very old video from maybe like the 70s or 80s. And he says that every director should be an animator first. And what he meant by that was that every animator has to be very meticulous with anything that they want to include in the shot so if you have the idea of a a person building a snowman you can't just draw the snowman draw the person and expect for the the surrounding background to come to life just because of that every single thing that you want to appear in that shot you have to create so that allows you to kind of expand your mind to take into account things that you might not have once taken into account like with live action filmmaking you can kind of have happy accidents where you're recording something and then you catch something in a shot and you're like oh I didn't even think to include that but with animation it doesn't always happen like that because you have to draw whatever it is that you want to see so if you want a person building a snowman and you want the snow to look fresh and be glistening you got to draw that if you want to have the background be this expansive forest with all of these, you know, redwoods and everything, you have to draw that. Like your mind has to be conditioned to take into account things that are below the surface level. And so I think that's what this whole argument kind of gets on my nerves about where people try to diminish animation as to this, like, oh, it's just drawings on a page. Like anybody can do that. When it is so meticulous and it is so like the attention to detail is almost painstakingly like difficult because you have to consider every single thing and you have to go beyond what even you're thinking to consider. Like it's, it's very, it's very detail oriented. And so I think like this whole, this whole argument doesn't take that into account. And honestly, it keeping it just completely like, you know, real with you guys. I just think that some people, they, they want want it so bad to like be the next coming of Siskel and Ebert. And when it just didn't happen, they decided to terrorize us all and make Twitter accounts and TikTok accounts. And now we have to suffer. And I want to know who started it. And trust, when I find out who it is, you will be dealt with. Because I simply cannot see so many bad takes every single day. It is frustrating to me. It hurts my eyes, and I simply do not like it. But I digress. That's me coming off of my little animation should be respected more soapbox, but it really should. As you guys know, I I love animation, and I will defend it with every fiber of my being. But anyways, moving on. Mean Girls turned 18 yesterday, which is 
a lot to wrap my head around. Um, I think it came out in 2000. Yeah, it came out in 2004, which I have, I made a video about it on TikTok. Uh, 2004, phenomenal year for filmmaking. And I'm not talking about like pretentious filmmaking. I'm talking about films for the girlies and animation, like the incredible SpongeBob movie, Mean Girls, like all these movies that are like classics that you can rewatch probably came out in 2004 I promise you if you're like around my age so yeah I turned 18 yesterday which it's definitely kind of gotten the the friends treatment where you can just find random like merchandise and accoutrement with like random mean girl quotes like I have seen literally everything under the sun with the quote on Wednesdays we wear pink Go to your local Marshalls, TJ Maxx, I promise you, and close your eyes and just hold your hand out. You'll probably find something with, like, either Mean Girls, like, quotes or sayings, Friends, The Office, and unfortunately, and I hate this, Shit's Creek, too, is also getting that treatment. It's just, like, a like a highly, like, merchandisable franchise. Um, but, yeah. And then to round out our meetings, I mentioned that sometimes in these opening meetings, I would talk about a movie that's 20 years old that I have watched for the first time and now I would like to bring it to the public and this week that movie is The Birdcage I don't know how I as a person who loves Robin Williams and his work so much I had not seen The Birdcage and so one night I was like you know what I'm gonna watch it like I I gotta watch it I gotta like check it off my pop culture to-do list and I have not laughed that hard in years when it comes to a movie like it had me crying at certain parts I watched it two days ago and then I was like okay I'm gonna watch it again because it was just that funny and the crazy thing about that movie is that it is for the most part Robin Williams plays like the the straight man which is you know no pun intended because he plays a gay man in the in the film but like he is playing like the straight man character like he does some like funny things but the kind of comedic aspects of the film come from Nathan Lane who plays opposite of him and Nathan Lane is so just ridiculously funny in that movie it is just so so good not that you needed a recommendation from me for a film that came out 25 years ago or 26 years ago now but it is very very good definitely like a film that you're not like oh this is so like the writing is just impeccable from start to finish because it has its moments when it's like okay maybe could have improved upon that a little bit but as a whole if you like Robin Williams if you like Nathan Lane um it's a really it's a fun time it is such a fun time and it's now like it's definitely like a new a new like classic new favorite of mine so opening minutes have concluded and now we're going to move on to the meat and potatoes of this week's episode. So obviously yesterday was April 20th, which is obviously better known as 420. And we all know that that holiday is a very green holiday, if you catch my drip. And also Earth Day is tomorrow. So it's just a green week. I've got green on the mind. So with that, it got me thinking about one of TV's most famous songs, being green which was sung by Kermit the Frog on Sesame Street so that's what we're going to be talking about today so let's take a walk down memory lane together while I tell you the story of being green the man responsible for it and probably one of the most heartbreaking performances of that song (laughs) 
Okay, so I don't talk about it all that much, but I love The Muppets and I love Sesame Street. I have made a a couple of videos talking about uh, Sesame Street and I love it quite a bit. And I need to make this distinction that The Muppets and Sesame Street are kind of like, they exist in the same universe, but they are not always the same, if you get what I mean. So like the Muppets kind of have their own thing going on and Sesame Street has its own thing going on. They're technically all Muppets, but it's not very likely that you'll see Gonzo or Fozzie Bear or like Miss Piggy kind of walk on Sesame Street and vice versa. You're probably not going to see Big Bird or Elmo in a Muppets movie. It's happened before. There has been some crossover, but they're kind of like... It's like the MCU in that, like, they exist in the same universe. They're probably aware of each other, but they're not interacting all that much. It's not like the Avengers, okay? The Avengers of the Jim Henson-verse, you know? So I just wanted to make that distinction clear. But I think a a big reason why I, I love them is because of the music that is featured in many Muppet movies and on Sesame Street, like watching a lot of the clips and stuff growing up, the music was definitely like a thing that really stuck out to me. And it's because that music is just a great tool to use for kids because they retain it a little bit better than just speaking at them. So many classics come to mind, like The Happiness Hotel, Rainbow Connection, Sing, Rubber Ducky, and of course, the classic and the song that is synonymous with Kermit the Frog, Being Green, or more commonly known as It's Not Easy Being Green. This classic has been covered by the likes of Ray Charles, Diana Ross, Julie Andrews, Frank Sinatra, I think, and even Oscar the Grouch, which is shockingly very fitting. So the story of the song is actually rather simple. Street Gang, The Complete History of Sesame Street by Michael Davis, which is a phenomenal book uh, on the history of the show. And it also inspired a really, really good documentary from HBO called Street Gang, How We Got to Sesame Street, which I got to see at Sundance last year, which was super cool, which is also phenomenal and I highly recommend it. Kind of chronicles how the song came to be. Quote, quote, Joe Raposo's best regarded song has an air of intrigue around it. This much we know. It began when John Stone approached Raposa with a request. Quote, we need a song for the frog, end quote, he said. And as he had many times with many songwriters and many songs, Stone walked Raposo through the curriculum goal for the composition and made lyric suggestions. Allegedly, there was a little bit of contention around like who would get royalties for the song and who like wrote the majority of the lyrics with the quote continuing on by saying, Only Stone and Raposa were in the room when the contemplative song for Kermit was mapped out, but members of Stone's family have insisted that it was presumptuous of Raposa to claim that he alone wrote Being Green. The sheet music has always indicated words and music by Joe Raposo, and thus the enormous royalties generated by the song have always belonged to him. John Stone's failure to call Raposo on claiming full credit kindled one of the worst marital disagreements between John and his wife Beverly. So that is the only little bit of like juicy drama that (laughs) that went on around the song. But the song went on to appear on a 1970 episode of Sesame Street. And the segment was very, very simple. The entirety of the song is sung by Kermit, who is sitting on a log in the forest. They don't do anything like too crazy. No other characters appear like it's pretty like it's a pretty much straight shot at Kermit. 
who is like singing this very kind of like I said like a very contemplative song but he's like very like he's thinking quite a bit like as he's singing it it's kind of coming to these different revelations on a surface level it the the lyrics talk about Kermit's gripes with being the color green and how he feels like he blends in with the colors of the leaves and he just doesn't feel like he stands out all that much and then towards the end of the song he realizes that being green is actually a good thing and he learns to love what is unique about him uh, the lyrics of the song are so simple, but yet so poignant and so beautiful. And I think that's why it worked so well on Sesame Street. And the song's meaning has also transcended beyond just being literal lyrics about being green and transformed into a song about being the other and the experience of feeling like you're an outcast, but finding a love for what makes you unique. There was an interview that I watched in doing research for this episode from Bob on Sesame Street, who's like the the music teacher who's played by Bob McGrath. And he talks about how when he first heard the song, it was just he was like it was a very sweet song for Kermit. But when he heard it sung by Ray Charles, he began to understand the different layers and how the song is really not just about like Kermit being green, but how that morphs into anyone who has like an identity that diverts away from the majority and the feeling of kind of being an outcast. And like I said, learning to, to love what makes you different. And so he kind of just said that the song kind of took on new life after that. And I think it's very, it's very, very true. And as a, a little aside, Kermit sang this song quite a bit. It quickly became synonymous with him. And like I said, it was covered by the likes of Ray Charles, Diana Ross, Julie Andrews, and one more uh, very special person or a very special being that we'll get to a little bit later. And if you're thinking, well, I don't really remember like Kermit being on Sesame Street all that much. I remember seeing him sing the song on The Muppet Show. That is a very common thing. Kermit was actually a pretty prominent character on Sesame Street in the very like early seasons. Like I'm talking 1969, 1970, 1971. Like it was very, very early on. So we're going to have a little bit of a Muppets history lesson. So contrary to popular belief, Jim Henson did not create Sesame Street. I see this quite a bit. And I think it's just because Muppets appear on Sesame Street. So you just think he created it. He did not. In the 50s and 60s, Henson created the Muppets and they were mainly being used for commercials and like late night talk show appearances. They were like cover songs and everything like that. They weren't made immediately for for kids. Like they weren't like beings that were being used to like talk to kids or anything like that. Because you got to remember in the 50s and 60s, television when it came to children was used as a vehicle to sell to them more than really anything else. So the creators of Sesame Street, who are Joan Gans Cooney and Lloyd Morissette, with the help of John Stone, who, like I mentioned previously, was the one who called in Joe Raposo to create the song. They brought in Jim Henson and his Muppets almost like as an asset to the show that they thought could further entice kids to watch it. They really liked the idea of having this uh, show that had both these characters, you know, the Muppets and humans being able to interact. And originally there was going to be on the show, it was going to be almost like two separate worlds. So there would have the Muppets side of things. So the Muppets will be separate from the humans and then the humans would be separate from the Muppets. And while they were doing research and kind of seeing what kids enjoyed, kids almost immediately 
only cared about the Muppet segments of the show and did not care about the human segments. So they were like, okay, let's combine these two aspects together and have the Muppets live amongst the humans. So when the show started, the Muppet roster obviously was not as filled out as it is now. Like there was no Miss Piggy, no Gonzo, no Fozzie, like no Rizzo, none of that. It was really just Rolf and Kermit. And actually, Rolf, the dog, was the the Kermit the frog. Like, Kermit was kind of this, one could say very bitter, kind of. Like, he was very, like, sarcastic and bitter in the very early goings of the Muppets. And eventually, he turned into this very, like, leader-esque figure of the Muppets, clearly. But they were the two kind of prominent figures on the show. And then, eventually, the show got its own roster of of Muppets with like Bert and Ernie and Grover and Big Bird etc and they make up the Sesame Street Muppet crew and then by the the late 70s early 80s Henson and Kermit would kind of begin to step away so that Henson and company could go and work on the Muppet show which obviously was a huge success the Muppets have a really really interesting history and I actually think I might do a larger retrospective on them soon because it's it's a lot of interesting stuff that went on with them from like when they started to kind of where they are now but anyways we're going back to the song so I mentioned that someone very special covered this song and the song's most famous cover was from a very familiar bird big bird and I'm not gonna lie to you it is kind of a hard performance to watch not because he didn't do well because we all know big bird he does his best But Big Bird covered the song at the 1990 memorial service for the creator of the Muppets, Jim Henson. You can actually watch Henson's funeral service on on YouTube. And it is kind of a an interesting mix of being both solemn and and jovial at times because the Muppets were participants in the ceremony at moments. And there was towards the end of the service, Jim Henson's ex-wife, I guess, and his kids read, I guess, what kind of is like his will or like his kind of last words that were sent to him after his death. And he makes some requests of things that he wanted at his funeral. So he requested to have like a New Orleans uh, big brass band kind of play at the beginning, leading in like the, the processional. And that happened, which was which was really cool. He requested that no one were black. So it was a very like looking at the footage is a very like colorful kind of crowd because they're all like wearing light colors and not really wearing like, you know, the traditional funeral attire. He requested that Richard Hunt host it or like be kind of the master of ceremonies and everything. So he had some some interesting like requests that he wanted to be done. And he wanted his his buddies, like his his coworkers and his buddies to sing some of his favorite songs. And so that happens too. And they have like the Muppets sing some of his favorite songs too. It is it's a hard ceremony to get through at times, especially after Big Bird's performance. And I'll get into why Big Bird's performance was so was so heartbreaking in a lot of ways. And then literally after he performed, it just, the emotions are just, ugh, they're all over the place. So like I said, as you can probably tell, I'm a massive fan of the Muppets and even I have some difficulty getting through the whole thing. But as I mentioned previously, Henson was not only the creative mind behind the Muppets, but he also provided the voice of Kermit since the beginning. Jim was Kermit just as much as Kermit was Jim, a gentle and kind-hearted soul with a creative genius that hasn't since been replicated. 
to me, Jim Henson is definitely amongst those like Mr. Rogers, LeVar Burton types that mean so much to you, even though you've never met them. So going back to Big Bird, Big Bird, who was played by the incredible Carol Spinney, approaches the stage and he's dressed in his best green tie and he begins to sing Being Green. It's heartbreaking because you can tell that he's singing through tears at certain points. His voice doesn't ever break, but it's just like the sound of someone who's like suppressing tears, um, but like fighting through it. And the emotion of it is almost twofold because it's it's Big Bird who is mourning his friend Kermit. But inside the suit, it's also Carol Spinney who is mourning his friend Jim, who he worked with every day for years on, on Sesame Street. And here's the part where you might need to, to break out the Kleenex. Big Bird, he ends the song. He does a phenomenal job. He ends the song by looking up to the sky and just saying, thank you, Kermit. And it is like the floodgates open. You're just like, <laughs> like you just you don't expect to feel this level of emotion for a what is considered to be a large puppet. But it is so like, like I said, because it's twofold of like, the character saying goodbye to the character and the man who plays the character saying goodbye to another man who plays the character. It's just all these different layers and it's absolutely beautiful and it gets me every single time. It really does. So the song that blossomed into a song about loving what makes you different began as just a simple tune about how it's not that easy being green. I hope you enjoyed today's a little bit late episode, Afternooners. And if you don't know, the Afternooners is my name for all of us. So if you made it to the end of this episode, congratulations. You're an Afternooner now. If you want to know where else to find me on the internet, you can find me at The Afternoon Special on TikTok or Instagram or over on Twitter at Hi, I'm Bobby. You can keep up with this podcast specifically over on Instagram at the Hi, I'm Bobby podcast. And that's all one word. And if you're thinking, Bobby, this episode really got to me. I'm crying and I'm already looking up Big Bird singing, being green. This is a lot for me right now. I'm not going to remember all that. Not only am I offering you a metaphorical tissue, I also put all of this information in the description box just for you. So whenever you're ready, whenever you watch that video clip and you finish up crying, all of that's going to be ready for you. I did that just for you. You're so welcome. And I know I usually do the part about, you know, you can send me a one minute audio message, blah, 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 blah. But I wanted to shake things up. And so, as you could probably tell, I do spend a lot of time researching these episodes. And that means that I listen to a lot of stuff while I'm doing it. So I thought I'd share what this episode was powered by. So this week's episode was powered by... The Defunct Land, Jim Henson, and Muppet series. Uh, Defunct Land is one of my favorite YouTube channels. He started out doing like really just like theme park history videos and has since morphed into doing a litany of things. Uh, Defunct Land is absolutely, the production value is insane on his YouTube videos. And the one that I watched uh, quite a bit while I was doing this was uh, titled The Final Jim Henson Hour, which goes into some of the last few projects that Jim Henson worked on before his death and also he kind of covers Jim Henson's funeral too so I, I highly recommend it if you're into the Muppets or if you're into Jim Henson in general or if you're just into really good video essays 
highly recommend Defunkland. Not that you needed a recommendation for me, because if you listen to me, you probably know who he is, but I'm recommending it regardless. I hope you enjoyed this week's chat and that you will join me again next week for another pop culture deep dive. Later days, friends. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.